0: All right, I'm back. Uh, Welcome to another round of Radical Humanity. My name is Ben Hoover. Uh, And uh, welcome to my podcast show where I explore my humanity. I explore my existence on a philosophical, psychological, spiritual dimension. Um, I like talking about my life and uh, the events, but I also like the conceptual. And I like, uh, I like digging into the ancient writings and finding messages in there that communicate something to me that are uh, inextricably living in me. That the the messages, and when I say ancient writings, I mean the Bible, but these, these ancient writings um, have these uh, uh, indissoluble truths in them. They're, they're, they're ageless. And and so I love it because for me it's it's this uh, exciting investigation of what am I going to discover, right? So anyway, so that's some of these episodes that I like to do. I like to talk about the um, some of those old narratives, those old stories, um, unearth these truths that relate and connect to, to myself. Um, uh, also here, actually, you know what? I need to... Uh plug in my iPad. Uh, Okay, there we go. Uh, I realize my (laughs) iPad battery is low Um, and I need to charge it. So uh, where am I? Yes. Uh, So yes, but I also, I will have episodes where I like to talk. I get more vulnerable and open and honest and explore the experiences that happen in my life. Because for me, I guess it's, it's part of my nature to think deeply, to find the meaning, to connect to other Relevant events in my life and extract uh, The message in that Um, Sure, not everybody operates that way somehow somehow that's wired in me. That's a part of me Um, Anyway on that note uh, This is a, a mini series where I'm exploring my spirituality outside the walls of religion And I'm doing so within the context of these four stories that I think are very interconnected to one another uh, and they're from the, the ancient scriptures and uh, and so this is part three and I actually ended up, uh, just a quick backstory, I uh, uh, really, I've scrapped uh, these episodes that I recorded and so I'm I'm re-recording with something for me that feels, I feel more connected to uh, because when I was reading my past writing which was t- 20, 20 pages, I got bored. The first two parts I really love. Um, and so I, I have an episode to that, those two each of those two parts. and this is the third episode. but the yeah the th- part three and four, I don't know, it just it wasn't it, it wasn't staying with me. I, I, I got lost. It was a little too much. It was kind of clunky and overloaded and I just my experience was it is I just I just didn't feel uh, connected to what I wrote. Um, so actually, this is fresh. I, I rewrote part three. And, uh today, and now I'm recording the episode. and I'm actually probably gonna uh, post not the writing yet, but the the episode uh, after I finish this. So it's kind of exciting. I like kind of doing it in the moment and then putting it out there. So uh, on that note, let me recap for a moment on this whole spirituality thing because, as I said uh, in the first episode, I lost religion. There was this atheism in a way, um, and uh, and I there was this inner exposure of my world, my life, of feeling lonely of these pains, um, feeling dependent on other people to, to, uh, including especially women that I would date to, uh, fill a hole in me, to, uh, uh, complete an identity in me that was missing when I was young. Um, and that all of that stuff, f- acted in a way, effectively acted at the time to fill this gap, to fill this ache. And then I started to experience this unraveling, this kind of shaking of my foundations and this these fissures started happening. And I, I started to doubt and question and not believe the messages and the way they were interpreted. Something felt off to me. Um, and that led me in this journey of connecting deeper to myself, of facing the scary truths that live in me, but also... and. And to confront, uh, like my parents, on the wounding caused, and um, and and begin to experience more of myself that had been pushed down and suppressed, especially my anger and hate and rage that had been living for so long. In fact, recently, I, uh, I, it actually was yesterday. I was talking to my therapist about how angry I am, how enraged I am, and I was trying to find the 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 source of that. And he says it doesn't matter. He said Ben, there's probably a hundred different sources in you. It's just a lot of this has been uh, so pushed down in you that sometimes this is just this is just about the 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 visceral expression of it. And I like that. Um, so anyway, uh, so yeah, so this, this whole world inside me that had been so suppressed has now, uh, had been surfacing. And in this journey, I began to see these ancient writings differently, began to see humanity and myself very differently in a different light. Um, really confronting judgment and this evaluative rubric in another way, drawing conclusions about others or myself, that something's bad or good or wrong or right, or shouldn't be there. Um, and, and as I, started to break through those barriers more and more, and still in in that process, I began to see things as they are, just as they exist, especially that which exists inside myself. And so uh, this transformation that started happening on the inside began affecting my perspective and view and way I connect and live and exist in the world today. So, uh, But on that note, what was lingering, uh, what had this question mark about it is, what what's what's spirituality for me because religion for me and you know we grew up in the christian faith tradition um that routine and ritual and that belief system really kind of completed it all for me i mean it made sense until it stopped and still until it started to to crack and fissure and erode and uh and then there's was this disorientation well what does this mean anymore and I got scared and I started to of judge myself and think I was a heretic and, you know, and I, I would push the stuff down and, or I would get angry at people that wouldn't see it my way. Um, but really it was, it was, yeah, this kind of lonely venture of finding truth. And, um, and so, so this podcast series is about putting language around that. Cause these stories, uh, have intrigued me for a long time. And finally I put pen to paper, so to speak, and began to write this out and began to explore. So, uh, on that note, the first episode was this interesting phrase when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is within you, All right? And he's talking, he's, he's, uh, that's his response to the Pharisees who say, Hey, when is this kingdom of God or heaven going to come? Cause they thought that, you know, that, that, this Christ Messiah figure guy would come in and kick ass and knock out the evil kingdoms, the Roman uh, rulers and emperors that were reigning at the time that were uh, infecting and affecting their their life and their lifestyle. And they thought, man, you know, we're waiting. We're waiting for Superman to come. And Jesus is saying, yeah, it's not going to happen that way because the kingdom of heaven lives within you. Which is also, if you fast forward throughout centuries and stuff, we've believed that heaven is this afterlife. And I'm not saying that there isn't anything afterwards. I just, hell if I know what that is. Um, and, but he's saying that, that heaven is now. And so what we've believed where heaven is this celestial, you know, these uh, big, luxurious clouds and golden, uh, uh, kingdoms and architecture and stuff. He's, it's, it's, that's rendered through paintings is not that. He's saying that it's it's all living right now. It's in the midst, meaning within. It's inside you now. So that means satisfaction and pleasure and restoration and creativity, imagination, all is within you. And then part two, because that wasn't... that. I love that. It's exciting. But that didn't clarify things enough because what does that even mean? And then Jesus has another conversation, this time with his clan, his tribe, the disciples, who are following him around, you know, and, and, and noticing, you know... Kind of associating with this weird, enigmatic guy that's that's doing some weird stuff and saying some weird things, and and they ask uh, they ask Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And they're talking about who's who's going to be high up on the pedestal, who's going to be crowned this this great, uh, highly esteemed person. And Jesus is saying, yeah, that's not going to happen. He he invites a child over, places the child to stand in the lineup with him, and says, if you want to enter the kingdom, if you want to be the greatest, then you got to be like this child and you got to change. That's the, that's the keyword change, which is convert strepho in Greek. Um, and convert is not jumping from one religious belief system to the next. He's saying you got to turn inward and find that childlike nature once again in yourself. And that requires becoming humble or being humble and humble is not this it's this, uh, I don't even want to say it's neutral, but it's this place of just existing in reality as you are. It's not this inflated, distorted, egotistical, fantastical, grandiose uh, uh, um, appraisal of yourself um, where I think I'm better than and more special than other people. Nor is it on the other end, which is you self-flagellate. This this self-deprecating, lowly, View where I'm worthless and I'm below people. It's not that at all. But it's just who I am as I am, and that is what it, how a child lives. So listen to that episode because I explain about the childlike nature, um, and all you have to do is find the answers in the children, <laughs> and in your experience of being around children and in an immersive experience playing with them, that they they show you the way right then and there. You don't even have to go. I can save you money on thousands of dollars of. Uh, of, of highly expensive seminars where they give you 10 steps to freedom. And it's right there. Freedom's right there in the, in that little small body of a child. Um, so, uh, so listen to that one. Now this is the third episode. And, and so the questions for me continue because that's exciting, right? Like, okay, I could see that, but, but it's not like, you know, it's not monkey see monkey do. It's not, you know, you look at a child and say, okay, I'm going to be like that because there's something blocks that if the child is the model, the embodiment of this freedom, by the way, he's talking about freedom, right? Is when you're in this childlike state, you're free. When you're in the kingdom of heaven, you're free. Um, And so, uh, but, but there's still answers for me of, yeah, okay, but how do you access that? Right? If the kingdom of heaven is a reality now and it lives inside of us and, um, and, and experiencing this realm can only take place when I get, I get back to my roots, when I find the, the, the childlike nature within that's intrinsic in me, then, then how do I reconnect to this? What's this process? How do I find this internal nature, this identity again? Well, there's this other story then that uh, I find provides the answers. So, uh, so the title actually that I call this, and I'm calling this episode, is called "Water Cooler Conversations," the Woman at the Well. Now, um, in this story, Jesus and his, and his disciples they have to travel through Samaria to get to another town, and so the disciples leave and they run and I think they go to run errands, and and Jesus is left alone and he's loitering at this well, and the writer, interestingly, uh, points out that it's high noon. So pay attention to that. And around that time, the Samaritan this Samaritan woman um, approaches the well to retrieve water, and as she is approaching, Jesus asks her for a drink. Now the woman is actually really surprised; she's kind of baffled as to why Jesus is talking about her, and she emphasizes even like, "You're wait, you're a Jew, and you're talking to a Samaritan woman." And he then responds. When he often has weird <laughs> responses, he says. Look, if you know who you were talking to, you'd be asking me for water. And it would be a water that would uh, eliminate her thirst. So... This woman though, understandably as I would be, was confused. Even reading the story is kinda of, it's weird because you have to dig a little bit. And so this woman is confused and she's unsure what Jesus means and what is this special water that he's talking about. And I'm wondering, like, does he have any samples? Is this kinda of like a Costco thing? Can you try it out? Um, and he tells so he tells the water or tells the water, he tells the woman. He, he, he gives clarification, which is not really clarification, because it's kind of, it's still bizarre and cryptic, but he tells the woman that he gives this kind of, he he gives this kind of living water, um, which is zao in Greek, and that means alive or vigorous, right? So he gives us alive live water that somehow it, it transforms the person on the inside when he says it becomes in him, and then when this transformation occurs, this water like embodies the individual, and it subsequently turns into more water if this sounds weird stick stick with me so it it, i'm I'm intentionally making it cryptic but i'm trying to explain at the same time um so this water that enters into the person that he gives it subsequently turns into more water and then it generates into a vigorous flow so he says it becomes a fount of water that then uh and, and this fount is pege in greek means flow and because this flow then is so vigorous inside the person, and it's energetic, it can't be contained. So then it unrestrictedly gushes out of the person when he says it springs up. This fount of water springs up. And apparently this water is is has some kind of magical properties to it that it leads to eternal life. Now, here's the thing. When Jesus is talking about eternal life, again, this is not about some detached afterlife, some... some Celestial cosmic universe that that happens after we die. He's talking about the existence now. He's talking about a quality of living now. A lifestyle that's ageless and boundless. Well, after he says all that, then the woman is sold. and, and, And asking Jesus, hey, give me this water then. So I don't have to thirst anymore. But she doesn't quite get it yet. So oddly... Jesus responds to this request, but then he, which is so weird, he then asks this woman, "Well, go get your husband." Which I'm thinking is this kind of like a one of those pyramid schemes. Is this, you know, I mean, he's getting more people to buy into this. I mean, what, what's, what's, what's his aim here? Well, the woman then says, "Hey, I have no husband," and Jesus, unwaveringly says, in his clairvoyant way, says, "Yeah, you're right." You you sp- you speak truthfully about that. He he, he he and then he proceeds to recount the woman's relational history. He doesn't even know her. He says, "Oh, that's right. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not currently your husband." And what's interesting too is he commends her before he goes into his his uh, his little prophetic uh, uh, account. There, um, he commends her, and he says that she's spoken truthfully. In other words. She was genuine. This is by the way, this is a very important detail. And she's blown away by his pinpoint accuracy. And the reason why I say that is because her response to her is: Man, you're a prophet. <laughs> Meaning you're a truth teller. Meaning you're you're speaking things that you don't even know about me. And somehow you're you are accurate, and I don't get it. Well now. What's what's even strange is then this conversation, it doesn't even linger around there. It now goes into something more bizarre. It's unusual, but I think it's intentional, where it takes a turn towards this topic of worship. And the woman um, ends up contrasting or juxtaposing uh, the way Samaritans worship and the way the Jews worship. And, And she talks about location. You worship here, we worship here, right? So again, this is important because this is emphasizing, look, there's these differences, right? You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. So pay attention. That's a part of why I think she's befuddled as to why he's actually talking with her. So in response, Jesus flips this all upside down. And he says that this whole worship paradigm is all going to change. And that time is now, present. He loves talking about the present. He loves talking about now. The kingdom of heaven is now, childlike nature now, all of that. And then he says that worship, this whole change in worship, is now. And when he says that, this, uh, that the location of worship and ceremony and all that, it's irrelevant. And instead, that true worshipers worship the Father, or God, in spirit and in truth. For this is what God is seeking. And he continues and he says that God is spirit, and the only way of worship must be and he repeats this again, must happen in spirit and in truth. So that's, for me, that's, that's worth taking note of. As he, okay, he says this twice. All right. Now, worship at that time, and even today, which occurs in the religious department of humanity, it's often, for me, this is my understanding of it, is it's often consisted of pos- positioning oneself and directing attention and ceremonial sacrifice and emphatic praise towards a divine source, towards that which is bigger than yourself, right? And such actions were have been done, were often done in fear, right? Because there's an angry God or whatnot, a dissatisfied, displeased God. And, and in the hope of connecting to a God who would then become satisfied, you know, taking notice of the sincere devotion and intention of the worshiper. And then the hope, too, after having won the divine's satisfaction, an attention that one the one engaged in worship would then uh, hope to experience a kind of connection that subsequently right, uh, 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 affect um, would satisfy personal wants or eradicate pain or fill the soul with feelings of pleasure and security and a sense of meaning for having expressed their love and gratefulness towards this higher power. That's the way that I. I've kind of constructed my understanding is that when I when I worship this divine source in, in you know in genuineness and uh, or in love and devotion and attention and you know and praise and then maybe I'll get what I need inside. I'll be satisfied. I'll it'll cure this anxiety and this insecurity in me. I'll I'll, I'll uh, it will it will take away the pain, kind of thing, right? But however, Jesus though he's the way I read this is he's rupturing this idea and lifestyle of worship altogether. Now, when I look closely again at these words, he's emphasizing worship being in spirit and in truth, and he says this twice. And when he says spirit, it's pneuma, and pneuma means breath or wind. And if you think about the nature of breath and wind, it's this invisible force, uh, but but it operates as a kind of flow or movement that happens inside of ourselves and outside. And interestingly, he uses that same connotation when he says God is spirit, pneuma and pneuma, in spirit, and God is spirit, pneuma, pneuma, breath, wind, right. And when he talks about truth, which is a Lethean Greek, he's talking about uh, the nature of authenticity, a state or position of being genuine, of being honest. Now that, to me, kind of sounds like how a child operates, right? That sounds like the nature of a child, and the other thing, as I go into the little finer details there, he talks about, uh, he uses preposition in, in spirit and in truth. Meaning, to me, meaning rooted in, immersed, or embodied. And then he says this word must, that, that worship must happen this way. Right? Which, for me, is just as striking and it has that same uh, uh, emphasis and accentuation that, that he uses when he talks about the um, the um, uh, becoming childlike and entering into the kingdom, when he says, you'll never enter into the kingdom unless you become like a child. It has that same ring to me, that same feel. So, in other words, what he's saying is it's inextricable. It can't happen any other way. So, for me, then, when I'm looking at this, all right, so... This is all in a side note in this conversation. Well, it's not a side note. It's all part of the conversation, right? And, and so for me, I'm, I, the questions I ask is, could it be then that Jesus is talking about worship, when he's talking about it, that it's actually a euphemism for connection? And could it be that when he talks about this great spirit or God, he means it's the source of breath and life? Or, even more so, breath and life itself? I know, kind of weird stretching a little bit but just you know let that sit and what if then connection or union with life and breath it can only happen must right can never right but it can only happen when we connect to the breath and life happening inside ourselves this inner current going on within that what if it's when we harmonize and attune to our own genuine self the kind of genuine self that is this rich tapestry of desire and want and creativity and imagination and humor and emotion, right? That we simultaneously, when we connect to that, we simultaneously connect to that which moves beyond and around us, that which is bigger than us. Is that what he's saying? And, and, or in other words, what if when we find our true selves or our authentic identity or our childlike nature that all lives inside of us, that we're now inextricably connected to life as it moves, flows, evolves, heals, and unites. And I'm going to take this a step further and distill this a little bit more. what if worship, then, is the enjoyment of ourselves, deeply enjoying and finding pleasure, both alone and shared together with others, in the richness of life's offerings? To me, that's mind-blowing. What if that's what he's saying? That you take around the ritual, the routine, and this external focus and devotion and live internally connected from this current within. That's the worship he's talking about. This deep, unbridled enjoyment and satisfaction with life. But, I digress. So the woman then, after she hears all this, she's still unaware who Jesus is. And she says, oh yeah, you know, I know that there's this Christ guy that's coming and he's he has all the answers. He's going to show up, right? And he's, he's going he's gonna to clarify it. And Jesus says, I'm that answer man. Well, then eventually, and I'm skipping some details, but eventually the woman leaves her water jar, which by the way is symbolic. And she rushes off to town to tell her people about Jesus. And how he clairvoyantly laid out her personal history. Right. And this then, uh, s- subsequently, this then generates a following. And people are, are listening to this woman, right? And getting interested in Jesus' magical ways. And they begin to believe the message that significantly impacted this woman. All right? Man, there's something going on here. I got to check this guy out, basically. And the story continues, which I, I don't, I don't go into more, but, um, so then these questions come up to me, what does this all mean? Why is the story even being told? And what is this strange living water that is being given and how is it being given, right? That somehow transforms the self on the inside that then inevitably impacts the way one embraces life. Well, here's where it gets even more exciting for me because the answers are actually in the meta narrative. Now, remember remember how surprised the woman was that Jesus would be conversing with her at all? Right? And there there's this emphasis about Jews and Samaritans and difference in worship and she even says, right? Like, you know, she pointed out, "You're a Jew and I'm a woman and you're talking to me basically." And then recall also how the author makes this little Almost, it seems insignificant, but this little detail about that it was high noon, and then also let's add to that her rela- the the whole dialogue about her relational history, how she had five husbands, and she's living with a man now and an unmarried status. Well, first off, back then Jews and Samaritans were not on good terms. Right, some probably got along, but it was it was pretty well known that there was this animosity between the two tribes generated a lot of it generated out of conflict and difference or differences over theology and religious practice right and so it was pretty substantial and pervasive and basically the Jews and Samaritans they didn't hang out in the same club right so for Jesus then a Jew to talk to a Samaritan he that was that was rule number one he was breaking or broken rule number one in other words and then there are also these gender rules too. Cuz what I didn't also mention in the story is that the disciples came back and they were surprised that uh, they were that he was talking to a woman. Right? They didn't ask anything, but they were just it, it makes note of that in the story that they were surprised. Right? So there are these gender rules then where it wasn't acceptable or customary for men and women, single men and women in a way to be alone together unless they were married. Plus, women were also considered subhuman or second class, and they weren't given respect or value. So here he is now breaking rule number two by talking to a woman alone and talking to a Samaritan. But then there's also this other element, which is the woman's marital history and current relational status and lifestyle. She had five marriages, right? And she was cohabitating and put the, uh, it's in quotes, right? She's cohabitating with a man. And, and, And that, then, therefore, that put this woman in, in, in an outcast position. She would have been despised, rejected, severely judged. In other words, she was a social pariah. And that detail about the high noon thing, remember that when the writer mentions high noon, this was considered to be uh, uh, the hottest part of the day. I think it says like the sixth hour or something. I don't know what that translates into um in terms of our time but but uh but all that meant was that it was scorching hot and so if it's i mean if it's blistering out blistering hot then it's really unlikely that others are going to go in the hottest part of the day and go retrieve water from the well And, and that which means that the cooler times of the day attract more of a crowd more people and more social contact which if I deduce a little bit here, that means that the woman picked the safest time to avoid running into anyone. And why then, why would you not want to run into anyone unless there was a real, there was a strong reason, just a really important reason that you wanted to dodge the experience of being the object of judgment and disdain. You know, I think about um, actually, uh, that reminds me of uh, with a friend that I got really honest with her, um, through text, I got really honest about my experience of her in this relationship. And I didn't hear from her for a week. And then I got a text and she was, I mean, she was angry back at me, understandably so. Cause I said a lot of things that I know hurt very deeply. Um, and, and I know that we, we see the same chiropractor and, and, um, it's less of a concern now, but there was this fear in me when I would go, especially in the beginning, where. I was afraid of running into her. I was afraid of of that of that vitriol, right? Uh, Of that anger. What would happen? Um, Because there was this, you know, again, there was this fear in me that there was this struggle in even embracing myself. That yeah, I have a side to me that can be an asshole. I have a side to me that's gonna get sometimes brutally honest. That sometimes I don't want to connect anymore with a person, and that's that part of me, I, I think I judged. And because I pushed that part of myself away, I also noticed that it would affect, it affected this experience of going to my chiropractor and worried about running into her. Um, so that's interesting. So I'm connecting to this woman, her story of wondering, ha, huh, I, I can relate to that. That yes, this woman didn't want this kind of exposure, didn't want to run into people and, and end up, being the object of their anger, of their condemnation, of their scorn. So for me, then, based on the surrounding evidence, it was highly likely that this woman lived suppressed and oppressed. That she was suffocating under the tyranny of both societal and internal judgment and shame. She hated herself, and she judged herself for the way that she lived, and and that first started with the external, with the way people judged her. So she was lonely, rejected, isolated, ashamed. She lived in the shadows, imprisoned um, by these uh, invisible yet overt forces of condemnation that I think were pervasive. I think that consumed society, her community, and herself. By the way, this isn't very ancient because I think this this operates... Uh, 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 this parallels society today to a point, uh, to a T, you know? Um, anyway, so for me, it, then it's safe to say that this woman, uh, didn't have a glowing resume, right? No one wanted to be around her. She was judged. She was shamed. So, um, and that's why I think she picked that time of the day to go. So to avoid any of that, so she was living in the shadows. And so when Jesus talks to her, he's breaking all of these rules on so many different levels, gender, cultural, political, right? He's shattering in this moment, beautifully and profoundly, he's shattering these fictitious dividing lines that haunt humanity, both uh, internally and externally. Right. But there's also something more profound happening because it's not just that he's breaking the rules and having a strange conversation with her. He's actually intentionally inviting her to connect with him, which is an experience that I think is completely foreign to her. And he's not only connecting with her, he's actually drawing out the truth that lives inside of her. Inviting her to experience herself genuinely, to become genuine before another. And it's instigating a freedom that she never knew existed because she's lived bound up. So, and the reason why I say that is because when he commends her on speaking truthfully, which in the Greek means unhidden or unconcealed, um, he he's validating her openness and honesty, All right? So this woman has probably stuffed this truth so far down, just so she could survive and avoid the dangers of being found out. So she felt unsafe in her world, in her environment, and because of this lack of safety, what are we going to do? We we hide. She hid from her people. She hid from herself, and this judgment and shame. That, that plagued her that that riddled her um, were I think were the very inhibitions to experiencing and connecting to herself in freedom and authenticity, to enjoy herself and enjoy life. So um, now notice when, uh, when she affirms Jesus's uh, accuracy about her history, this is really important because she's not backing off. She's not closing up. She's not going away. She's not running for the hills. She actually continues to engage with him genuinely. She validates that that's true. You're right. When she says you're a prophet, she's saying, you're right. That is my history. She's opening up. And why? When a woman who's been living on the outskirts, right? When she's evading the truth for God knows how long, you know, from herself, from her community. Why then would she open up to a strange man that she's never met that's considered uh, amongst her people an enemy? In a way, right? Because the conversation isn't just a conversation. This isn't just a, a nice talk. It is a spiritual and enigmatic connection that I think is substantially rich in care. It's boldly loving. It's genuine. It's compassionate. It's safe. It's the very thing that I think is, operates in the realms of therapy that I love. And it, obviously it doesn't just happen in therapy, but, but I mean that's why I think I gravitate towards that so much as a therapist because I didn't mention that I'm also a therapist. Um, but this is where these experiences can happen. This invitation can happen. Right? So Jesus gets honest with this woman as he lays out her past. But he doesn't evaluate her. There's no judgment. You notice that he just, almost matter-of-factly. Um, I don't. I don't think mechanically. But he, he, you know, he just lays out. He just states the truth of her history that's been dwelling inside her, and he accepts her as she is. He doesn't condemn her. He doesn't tell her she needs to change or that she's sinning or or that she's wrong or evil or horrible. None of that. Or that she should change. None of that. He just. Uh, he removes the impediments of judgment. That's it. Through, a, through an honest, connected conversation. And what happens? I love this. She engages more. She opens up. She becomes genuine and more connected. And what happens after that? She runs off and tells her community, her community, right? Probably the very sources of judgment the very community she lives in terror of that she hides from she reflexively illuminates her inner truth that the fact that that's been you know illuminated by Jesus then she goes and she, when she says she's right you're right Jesus yeah this is this is yep yeah, this is me this is my history this is part of me she runs off and tells them this she tells them about Jesus but she says this man told me everything about my history Right? So she reflexively illuminates this inner truth. And that continues to rupture the barriers of judgment and shame that kept her bound and alone. And, by the way, the people around. Because, here's the thing, if we judge others, it's a reflection of the, there's this judgment that lives inside us that, that eats away at us. It's this cancerous force. So, when that judgment is removed, she's going off and she's, telling, she's saying, look, this is what was said. And people are... Be getting impacted by that. She boldly and uninhibitedly shares her story with them in freedom. That's pretty badass. It has this rippling effect. So, to encapsulate this, when when I all those enigmatic euphemisms, right about living water, or the you know these beautiful but kind of ethereal metaphors, or this cryptic jargon you know about worship and you know and all of this stuff that Jesus shares in conversation with this woman it's tangibly happening in the midst of this of this intimate exchange it's right there you don't even have to ask it's it's laid out in the narrative of the story of what is occurring it's not the the little intricate dialogue is happening as these two are interacting so when he talks about giving living water to me i see the answers to, uh, of its meaning happening uh, in the story, as he compassionately invites this oppressed woman, who's deeply alone and who's riddled by shame and judgment, to connect in genuineness with him. Right, and this genuineness is her inner self. It's this reality that that uh, that lives underneath her skin. It's that which is often hidden, that we conceal, that we censor. Out of self-protection, because we don't want to get hurt. We don't want to be judged. But Jesus is doing something phenomenal and incredible. He's inviting this world within this woman to come out. To come out of its constricting chambers, to, to be exhaled, to breathe. And this woman, then therefore, having had this encounter, she euphorically experiences freedom to be herself. Wow. This man doesn't judge me. i not I'm not uh, you know shriveling into the shadows in shame. Man. God, this is exciting. This is freeing. I can breathe. In other words, <laughs> right? So, uh, and and because of that, she inevitably right, she she's energetically compelled to go share this with other people. Well, to me, this sounds exactly like the metaphor he's talking about—that this living water then becomes uh, uh, becomes in the person a fount that springs up to eternal life. That this genuineness radiates genuinely and unrestrictedly and automatically. That this—that you can't help. And when I say can't help, it's that there's this part of it's can't help because it's so automatic, but it's also because you want to. I want to share this. I want to talk about myself. I want to get vulnerable. I, I would and I want I I'll invite others to experience the same thing. That's what's happening in the story, right? And this I believe then is this whole worship concept he talks about. It's this inherent visceral connection to one's inner self, and it and and it's amalgam of desire and want and a drive to freely indulge and enjoy life in harmony and in union with others. It's an inner movement. that uh, is fueled by a genuine voice within. And the reality is genuine, for me what I've learned is genuine connection and union with life around, it can only, only happen when one is in union with the life inside. When he says, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, it's, it's, it's to love entirely, unrestrictedly. But that love with others and for others and to others can only happen when that exists first within ourselves when that love is rooted in the seed is planted within right that's what i mean when it can only happen in that way when there's a union when there's a harmonization when there's a there's a t- attuned loving non-judgmental connection to ourselves to the world within to me that then is a spirituality that's stripped of ritual and ceremony that's lived from the inside out. And so now, for me, I see Jesus as this, as this conduit. He operated in this deep, attuned way of living, this connection with himself and life. And therefore, in the stories, you see him inviting others to experience this for themselves, this way of living. And so the story is so beautiful, and it masterfully shows that freedom, this freedom he talks about, this childlike nature, this this um, kingdom of heaven within, that this freedom to to uninhibitedly exist and breathe as one's genuine self, it can only happen when the oppressive and constricting forces of judgment are removed. And if we think then actually that it. L- lies that the source is just in one man thousands of years ago that we got to keep turning to, if we think that he's the only one, the only character of this kind of magic, then we're gravely mistaken because he says, I believe on one on more than one occasion that it lives inside us too. That we have it in ourselves. Because he just says that kingdom is within you. What I'm showing you, what I'm modeling, what I live out of is exactly what's inside you. All he's doing is removing impediments by bringing the truth as it is. Without shoulds and obligations and you need to do this, And you need to commit to this, and you need to sign this. And no, none of that. It's just, there you are. (laughs) Inside. I see you. And it's this experience of being seen and known. Right? That then, we automatically live in that way and we respond to others in like. So um, yes. <laughs> I don't have, I don't have much more to say to that. Uh, that's been my journey and my experience is working through the, the the vicious voice, the bully of judgment that I first experienced when I was young for my parents. From the church. That it's been this tumultuous, conflictual, very difficult, sometimes painful, sometimes exciting journey of finding that voice within. It's there. It's right there. So, clearly I'm not done. When, I, when I'm when i saying all this, I feel like I'm done. But I have another story that will add to this. So that I think, now I think seamlessly connects. Um, so uh yeah i hope you enjoy that i hope you connect that i hope you wrestle with it i hope you you make it your own and you dig and you explore and you tarry with this for yourself so on that note to be continued